0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm April. And we have a special in studio guest this week. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do?
2: I can. And I will. Uh, my name is Austin Wilkin. I am the archivist for the Marlon Brando estate.
1: Okay, so what does that mean to be an archivist for the Marlon Brando estate?
2: So Marlon Brando was an American actor and activist. So he had a whole bunch of stuff when he died. Short version is he had a whole bunch of stuff. They sold the house he lived in since 1957, I think 56, 57. Being there for so long, he amassed a massive amount of stuff. There's, there's a thought that he knew that... He was Marlon Brando and he should save his stuff. By the time he moved there, he had already won his first Oscar and he was at the peak of his brando I guess. <laughs> um, at, right after he died, his family had a auction at Christie's and they sold a ton of it. Apparently, Johnny Depp bought a lot of it to try and keep it together. They became very good friends in the 90s after the movie Don Juan DeMarco. Yeah, so he had a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I study some library sciences. I don't have a degree in it. Um, I forget, there's a term someone out there knows, I'm sure. An archivist that doesn't have a degree in library science has, they have a slang term for an archivist like that? But my background is in documentary filmmaking and archival-heavy documentary filmmaking. So there was a documentary project that was started, and they asked me to come help out on that project. And I built little databases for all of the archival that they were sending. And they said, hey, we really like what you're doing. Do you want to come database everything and that was five years ago and I'm still doing it.
1: That's awesome. And you had something to do with the Marlon Brando documentary that came out a few years ago. Is that right?
2: Yes. Listen to me, Marlon. That was the project that I was kind of hired on. Not that movie specifically. It was a different project, um, but it was also had to do with his archive. And and what we were lucky enough to do, so Brando had tons and tons of tapes. I think even more than exist because I uh, actually met Johnny Depp once very briefly at an event. And I told him what I do. And he said, oh, that's amazing. You must have found that tape of me and him talking all this shit about this movie we we're doing in Ireland. I said, no, I have not found that tape. Where is that tape? So there's tapes out there somewhere. He started recording himself in the 50s. He, so he's, he had these reel-to-reel tapes. So there's dozens of reel-to-reel tapes. It runs the gamut. is reel-to-reel to cassette, to micro cassette to uh, handheld digital recorders. But the handheld digital recorders all broke so we only have the tapes so only the analog stuff survived wow yeah so
1: how much of it have you gone through
2: well we digitized all of the tapes in order to make the documentary so the documentary is marlon brando narrating his own life story so Stephen Riley was the director, and he it, he's the director and the editor and the co-writer, and he really sunk into the whole thing. He went and interviewed everyone in Brando's life that's still alive, got a really good sense of him, and was able to make sense of all this and did an amazing job doing it. So they say about 300 hours. So I'm the guy who digitized all 300 hours of that audio.
0: Damn. When you say that Marlon Brando narrates the, his own story in this, is it from the footage then that you digitized? the? Yeah footage, the, vi- All the audio. audio.
2: Yeah. Intense. They found some other uh they found some other sources. I would say ninety-nine percent of it was from us and then there are some other sources. The core of it was when he wrote his autobiography, the process by which was to record conversations with his co writer, and then the co writer would take the transcripts, write it up in first person, Brando would edit it and they would just go back and forth. But they recorded all those conversations.
1: That's incredible. So fortunate. Yeah, Yeah. very fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. He must have foreseen that something like this would happen.
2: What's really interesting, and some of it's in the documentary where there's a lot of myth busting about Brando that I still want to do. You know, one of the things is that he showed up to Apocalypse Now overweight and underprepared. I'm not going to say he wasn't overweight he was not as big as you remember, if you watch it again. And, you know, and he, they use it and they shoot him beautifully. But he was completely prepared. Not only was he familiar with the book, but there's, there's tapes and tapes of him practicing dialogue. There's tapes of him researching. Kurtz was based on a real guy that, I guess, then lived in Maine or something. So there's this two-hour conversation of him talking to a journalist who knew this guy who was in Vietnam. And together, they sort of fleshed out all of Kurtz's backstory. So he, he was really prepared. And so that's one myth that's busted. Do we know where that myth originated? Francis Ford Coppola, because Brand, he never paid Brando. So Brando sued him. And I think the myth, I could be wrong, but I, I think the myth originated in the lawsuit where... Coppola was saying that Brando cost all these overruns because he stopped down production so they could go discuss the character. And I just think what happened was Coppola was shooting for maybe like 16 months or something before Brando showed up. So he was going through all of this stuff before Brando gets there. Then Brando shows up with all of these ideas, creative ideas, and he's like, no, let's just shoot the movie. We just need to shoot it and go home. And Brando brings all of this new stuff and he won't let it go he won't shoot something less than his what he wants so his so him and coppola go off and figure out how to do it but it cost all these overruns so then if i remember correctly brando sues coppola His, his defense is that brando cost all these overruns so this whole idea that and i think how it came to and this is this is the the main thing so that's my theory but the main thing is it's in the documentary hearts of darkness that coppola's wife made or Brando's the bad guy.
0: So it becomes a bit of he said, he said.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's
0: unfortunate.
2: But he he's definitely prepared. There's proof in the tapes. Are there any other myths? People like to villainize Brando. It's a really interesting thing that's happening now is that millennials didn't experience the 90s Brando because Brando was just torn apart in the press all through the 90s. And they didn't experience that. So they're rediscovering young Brando and they don't have this negative connotation that we all grew up with or, you know, knew from, you know, from Apocalypse Now on. You know, actually, I think we started with the uh, Little Littlefeather in the 73 Academy Awards. People always say he sent Sasheen Littlefeather to accept his award, but he didn't. He sent her to decline the award. He is one of two people to ever decline an Academy Award. The other was George C. Scott. If you watch the video, uh, Roger Moore hands her the award, and she puts up her hand and declines it. Yeah. Says that she's declining it on behalf of Marlon Brando for the treatment of the American Indian.
1: You described Brando as an activist. Can you talk about his activism a little bit? Well.
2: Piggybacking on that, so I wasn't a big Brando fan necessarily going into that. I'd only seen, you know, the five or so movies that everyone sort of has seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I understood that everyone said he's the king of actors or whatever. But what I discovered by going through all of this material, because the boxes were just stuff there's just tons of stuff a lot of it was trash and we had to separate out the trash and figure out all these things there's all these amazing correspondences and and you know scripts and script notes that that he had um but one thing that people don't talk about with the Sasheen Littlefeather thing is a couple years later maybe a year later it could have even been that year 73 73 74 brando was in south dakota with the lakota Native Americans standing with them um, in solidarity against the FBI who's trying to take their land. And he didn't advertise it. He was just there with his friends. The only reason I know about this is because there's a tape um, from a Minnesota public radio station, because there's a shootout between the FBI and uh, there are many. And I, I don't think this is one of the more famous ones. So there's the shootout and Brandon was shot at by the FBI. The local public radio went out there and interviewed everyone. And Brando was one of the people they interviewed. And they talked about getting shot at.
1: That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, I, I'm speechless. Do you know if Jane Fonda was out protesting with him? Because her and Brando did some activism together.
2: It's possible. I don't know if they were there at, the, at that one. But okay. yeah, I know that she, she really looked up to him in terms of activism. And a lot of that started with the civil rights so I'm just like a fun fact jukebox about this guy now because I've so much of this stuff. So so you know, if you wanna point me in a direction. So Brando's born in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, Henry Fonda was also from Omaha, Nebraska. Brando's mother was an actress in a local community theater. So was Henry Fonda. And they they knew each other, they they were in a play together, and she encouraged him to according to this is a legend I can't prove, but this the story is that she encouraged him to go to Hollywood because she thought he was such a good actor. Her husband didn't like her acting, so he, he ended up taking the family, uprooting them, and taking them to Libertyville, Illinois, where she just became a broken alcoholic. It's really Those sad. Those were his, bad
1: times for women.
2: His childhood is really, really sad. Uh, he later named his so his mother passed away in 55, right after he won the Academy Award for On the Waterfront, and he started a production company in her name. Her, her maiden name is Penny Baker. So he started Penny Baker Productions. And to get back to the activism thing, Penny Baker Productions was created with the sole intent of creating movies about social justice. How
0: long did Penny Baker Productions run for? Until
2: or? 1966. And He's
0: do we know any of the movies that it produced? Or? A
2: few. Um, the problem, one of the problems was he was a, such a huge movie star at that point, no one cared about him making these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them that he tried to make in 1962... Ish. He made a film called The Ugly American, which was based on a popular novel at the time. But he was redeveloping it into this anti-Vietnam War movie before the Vietnam War. So he saw all of this that was happening in Southeast Asia. And so the movie takes place in it's in a fictional country, but it's Vietnam. The problem is, and there's tapes to back this up, where he's arguing with the director and the producer about what this movie should, uh, how to open the movie. So he has this amazing opening with a kid uh, who has a bomb running through a crowded marketplace, and the bomb is ticking. And so there's all this tension; we don't know what's going to happen, and maybe maybe people are chasing the kid. I forget, but you know this whole idea, and he just you know goes on and on, is describing what happens, and then you know, and then at some point the bomb goes off. And that bomb is the inciting incident that kicks off the movie. And but the director is arguing for no, no, no. We need these long sweeping shots of the road because the whole movie is about the West coming in to build this road, these modern roads for this new country. So we need these this, these long shots. We'll have our, our title sequence over these long shots. And uh, and Brando said something he said frequently at the time was, "No, you need to stop people. You need to stop the motion of the popcorn to the mouth." That was his goal, wow. to get people really interested. So basically what it is, is it's the tension between old Hollywood and new Hollywood, mm-hmm. but in 1961. He's trying to evolve the medium. Here's another fun fact. Marlon Brando never had a studio contract. So his first film was 1950. is a, a one-picture deal for a film called The Men, made by Stanley Kramer, who was his idol in social justice movies. Stanley Kramer went on to do um, Judgment at Nuremberg and, and The Wild One. So, yeah, so he actually took some guys from Stanley Kramer's crew to help build Penny Baker, and make Penny Baker movies. But uh, so he signed a one-picture deal. Um, his next picture was Streetcar Named Desire, also one-picture deal, because he didn't want to commit to acting. He didn't want to commit to Hollywood because he was more interested in these other things that were happening in the world. Back to uh, activism, he started working with the UN in 56, I think. He was a goodwill ambassador for the UN. He toured the world talking about all the good things the UN was doing, thinking the UN was the greatest hope for world peace at the time. And then he started... He was always interested in civil rights, and he got really interested in the 50s. He became friends with James Baldwin back in the 40s in Manhattan. They They met at a cafeteria or some random place. But this was a time when... 40s New York, you know, he became friends with Quincy Jones. He became friends with James Baldwin, Norman Mailer, like all these people were just around Harry Belafonte, Ruby Dee and Ozzy, Harris, uh, Ozzy Davis. Rather. So he was going up to Harlem to the jazz clubs in Harlem all the time. He loved it. So he became really interested in, in civil rights. There's a lot of telegrams and correspondence with A. Philip Randolph and uh, Martin Luther King. He was at the march in 63. He did a lot of marches here. And another thing is interesting and disturbing is the hate mail that we have in the archive that he received for doing all of this.
1: Yeah, I was wondering, did the FBI ever open a file on him?
2: Oh, yeah. We don't have a copy of it, but there's a great biography that I recommend. It's it, There's a lot of biographies, and they have the pluses and minuses, and some of them are just trash. They're just absolute rumor and gossip and trash. Uh, unfortunately, those are the ones people seem to read more than others. But a couple of years ago, a woman named Susan Mizraki came to the archive. And uh, is, she's the only biographer so far who's had access to the archive and put together this great book called Brando's Smile. It's a thorough read on, on who he was and the ideas. She tracked down her angle was going to all of his books. He's an avid reader and he annotated a lot of his books and they all sold at the Christie's auction in 2005. So she tracked him down. There's only a few buyers who bought in bulk, luckily. And she tracked him down and was able to go through all the books and read all the annotations and and build this more philosophical and well-read version of this guy that people just think of as, as an actor.
1: He was also an environmentalist, right?
2: Very much so. Um,
1: Can you talk a little about his environmentalism?
2: Yeah, he... I, this, so this is something I've been trying to research more because, like I said, I've been doing this five years and it's still, you know, it, it's a big job to sort because it's almost all paperwork now. So getting all the audio video stuff together was the first step. So we made the documentary. Now going through the paperwork is a lot heavier because there's a lot. There's just a lot of paper. But yeah, so a lot of it. So he was obsessed with evolving ideas. He was big into new ideas. He was big into to renewable energies. And a lot of that came when he bought the island in Tahiti, Tetiaroa.
1: When did he buy this island and who was living <laughs> on it and why so, did he buy this?
2: Yeah, so it's pretty fascinating. So this is what I've been trying to do more research on. So I don't know all of the details, but here's the best that I can surmise. So it's, it's technically a coral atoll. Um, it is, I think, seven motus around a coral. It only sits about three feet above sea sea level. He was obsessed with Tahiti. One story is that he would be in trouble. He got in trouble a lot in school. He got kicked out of military school in high school. Um, So as he was getting in trouble, he'd be sent to detention, and there he would read um, National Geographic. Once he was able to get out of the country, he traveled constantly. But he always wanted to go to Tahiti. And he was offered two movies in the late 50s. One was Lawrence of Arabia, And the other was Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty was shooting in Tahiti. And he always wanted to go. That's where he went. He loved Tahiti. He loved Tahitian people. Um, And he, while he was shooting there, someone took him to this small atoll, which is, I think, 33 miles or so north of Papayeti, which is the main island of Tahiti. And uh, there's a woman, an elderly woman, elderly blind American woman living there who knew who he was from shortwave radio um which must have been very surreal because one thing he likes about traveling is that people don't know who he is mm-hmm. um so yeah so so this woman knows who he is um her she inherited i'm going to just use island for a short mm-hmm. as everyone does but it's technically not an island um uh her name was mrs duran i can't remember her first name her father was a dentist and he got the island when the king, the then king of Tahiti bequeathed the island to this American dentist. Why? I don't know. So Mr. Duran uh, then willed it to his daughter and she lived there with um, a bunch, of like, I think 40 cats and dogs and... So he and they just hit it off, you know, because he's that guy was charming to no end. I don't know how it comes up, but he wants to buy the island or she wants to give it to him.
0: Is this a this isn't like a leisure island for him, is it? Or is it like, oh,
2: yeah, there's nothing there. So he, he buys just... it. There's, there's a shack that she lives in. That's about it. Did he go there just to hang out, or is there anything? It had two. I think two main functions for him. Mm-hmm. One was just to get away from everything and relax. And it's just so beautiful. He, he said when we looked at the lagoon, the quote is, "I didn't I didn't think there were so many shades of blue or something. Mm-hmm. He just loved it there. That's lovely. It was super peaceful. He tells this beautiful story where the first night after he buys it, he goes to the island and he just lays on the beach and uses a coconut for a pillow and just falls asleep under the stars. There's no air pollution. There's no nothing. It's just pure. So he starts wanting to use it as a base back to the environmentalism you know it's this pristine scenario right so to start using it to test different technologies to use solar power there's a bunch of other things and i can't remember off the top of my head what they were do you guys know the whole earth catalog Mm -hmm. so Stuart brand the creator of the whole earth catalog brando read it and loved it so he called him up which he used to apparently do all the time because he's Marlon Brando. He was interested in something. <laughs> he Apparently, he read Margaret Mead's book and loved it and called her up and had dinner with her because when you're Marlon Brando, people take your calls. So I called up Stuart Brand and invited him to, and a couple other people, to the island to, to talk about different scientific possibilities. How can we evolve the ideas? You know, we have this sort of playground to do this stuff. There was another guy who... Who he talked to, who worked with uh, Buckminster Fuller. They also did a big excavation because it was before the dentist owned it. The king of Tahiti used to apparently go there a bunch, so they they wanted to do like a full excavation for the people of Tahiti. Like, what is this island? So he had people from Tahiti and college students from Tahiti come up and partake, and it was really about sharing and giving back, but trying to um, you know use it to to study things. They study things now. There's a scientific base there now called the Teteroa Society. They study mosquitoes. They study global warming, sea levels rising. They study, I don't know, a whole bunch of stuff. com. And did he set this society up or was this like... A- it's in his... He wanted it... So he stopped going to the island at a certain point. The official day is 1995 when his daughter died. His Tahitian daughter died. So... That's when he never went back. But I think he stopped going back a little bit before that. Um, he tried to start a hotel on the island in the 70s.
1: You mentioned that he stopped going to the island because his Tahitian daughter died. Did he have a daughter with someone in Tahiti? Or is yes. it sort of a, okay.
2: Well, yes, his, um, his co-star, his female co-star in Mutiny on the Bounty um, and him got married in Tahiti and they had two children, one of whom still there and he still works with the island and the people who are there now Tetoro society and there's a now there's a super swanky hotel on the island but it's all very in his in his spirit it's very eco-friendly and they run a lot on as much solar i think as it's possible i think the idea if they haven't been self-sustaining yet the goal is for them to be self-sustaining but it's it's super luxurious uh hotel I have not been there.
1: Look, you, you've got to go.
2: <laughs> I'm sure there's archives there. there that they need.
1: <laughs> so did he stop going to the island for
2: health reasons? No, because she died in '95. It was just too. It was too painful. Then for him. after that, it was absolutely too painful, and he'd never be back. Okay. But I'm not sure when the last time he went was. Maybe the '80s, sometime in the '80s.
1: Okay, so it just held too much pain yeah. for him because it had been such a joyous place.
2: Yeah, he was going there a lot in the '70s. That's for sure. He kind of stopped acting. The formula, the movie George C. Scott, was his that was came out in seventy nine. Seventy nine or eighty. Maybe eighty. And then that was it. He didn't do any more acting for a while. He still was doing a lot of Superman. Seventy
1: nine. Oh, that was seventy nine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought that was in the eighties.
2: So so eighty must have been the formula. That was the last one. He started writing screenplays in the eighties. So he wrote a bunch of screenplays. So people give him a hard time for Superman and, and, he had, and he got a huge payday out of it, but they only got to make the movie because he was attached. The Salkinds who produced it, he was the first person attached and they said, Hey, we got Marlon Brando. Then they got everything else. They got all the money and because they had Marlon Brando, they could cast an unknown to Superman. So that movie is nothing without him wow. on, on paper. Terrence Stamp tells this great story. Terrence Stamp was done with acting, and then this job came along, and he's like, I want to work with Marlon Brando. So there's this so they're doing a scene together, and he said, everywhere you saw the like cameras over here, everywhere around it, with that's not a light, has a cue card on it. But Brando turns into the shot. So he has the first line written on a piece of paper on his hand. And he's like really practicing the paper, and he's kind of going through it. He says, Marlon, what are you what are you doing? What's all this? What he's like, I don't want to. Bother learning lines? Why learn lines? They're just Sam and it's, it's There's no point in learning it. I have more important things to fill my head with. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> it's something to that degree. And he says, "But what if you what if you need to do Shakespeare?" He goes, oh, I know Shakespeare," and then starts reciting Shakespeare. He had Hamlet's uh, uh, monologue to the players about what acting is memorized, he could recite it at the drop of. So
1: acting. he had his priorities straight right (laughs) Shakespeare you want to memorize Superman not so much doesn't matter I mean
2: and he's fine oh he says Krypton instead of Krypton but (laughs) but he's great you can see his Rolex watch in one shot and then he came sort of out of retirement although I don't know if it was ever called retirement to do a dry white season in 89 and they did all those 90s movies
0: which is what we know him from
2: as like
0: the madman basically right. is yeah all the stories of dr moreau and how nuts that whole production was apparently
2: yeah there's um, a great documentary about that called yeah. um, island of lost souls
0: i've been no that's to the watch book. that. what's it, the
2: lost souls i think is the I documentary think so. yeah
0: and i know there's been some gri- really really good interviews with like ron perlman about yeah. being on set and how much obviously he
2: respected brando so like just
0: begging to have him recognize him <laughs> not begging but like hoping hoping he'd yeah l- I,
2: luckily he's yeah. not the villain of that documentary <laughs> no the real villain is val kilmer <laughs> oh val in the documentary mm. um he also
0: he's always he the villain isn't he <laughs> and yet i love him too <laughs> i can't kiss kiss bang bang please that movie's great That is great i'm curious you said he was kicked out of military school but he sounds like a really intelligent learned man yeah yeah is he self-taught what did how did this come about how did he become interested in all these things well
2: he's he's a big reader i think it all happened when he moved to new york i think a big part of it was stella adler a big part of her lessons for acting is for actors to to study the humanities to become learned in in every every way you can because that will inform every character you play so, you know, study music, study literature, study all these things. But he read a lot of philosophy. I
1: mean, it almost seems like she influenced his activism.
2: Yeah, you know? totally. He was just an empty vessel. And she was just able to pour everything into him. And he just he was bottomless she just she describes him that way it's something to that effect that you know she has all of this you know because she grew up in the yiddish theater she was part of the group theater um she went and met stanislavski in paris to talk about his style of acting um which uh, lee strasberg went off and called the method but she never did and then he just shows up in her life and and she's like oh my like he's i can just put everything into him and he just became that Person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then also, probably the growing up in a
2: family that was. So he was super and, damaged. Yeah. He was to, super, like, super damaged. Anthony involved. Quinn said, I would love to have his talent, but I'd hate to have to go through what he did to get it.
1: Did he have brothers and sisters?
2: He had two older sisters. And one of them was moved, came to New York. I think they both lived in New York at the time. And he was just following them. He was just bumming around. He had no.
1: Oh, he goal. didn't even really want to be an actor.
2: No, it's just something to do. He wanted to be a drummer,
1: a jazz so, drummer.
2: Mm-hmm. That's why he went to Harlem. He had they they say backstage when he was doing Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway, he had a little uh, bookshelf built into because he spends a lot of the time off stage. Mm-hmm. But he didn't go to his dressing room; he was just off stage. But he had a little bookshelf like behind the the stage where he would sit and read all day or between acts or whatever. You know, there's a there's a term that someone wants to use organic uh, intellectual mm-hmm. and i think he's very much an organic intellectual
1: he just blows me it just blows me i, I don't know i just feel kind of speechless about yeah it.
0: i my whole perception i mean we always knew he was marlon brando the genius actor the the actor who shifted acting <laughs> but coming of age in late 80s and then watching him in the 90s he, by that time, the mythos was that he had just lost it and kind of gone off the deep end. In my mind, I just remember all like hearing this, like he's so hard. And part of it is the Heart of Darkness documentary, right. all of these things that you
2: you watch. Well, it's easy to throw him under the bus, I think, because he wouldn't fight back because he just didn't care. I like to say he was he was punk before rock <laughs> because he was that guy in the early fit before rock and roll was a thing mm-hmm. um he also thought the term rock and roll was really funny because it was just a slang term for fucking, <laughs> and then they called it rock and roll he's like Are you kidding me that's so stupid but he you know wild one was all it's a jazz score of the wild one because rock and roll hadn't broken yet he didn't give a fuck. he didn't want to be uh tied to hollywood he didn't want to do that he's still trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life He just also happened to have this great talent. Here's a funny story. So in 1966, he sold Penny Baker. So the reason Penny Baker... One of the reasons why Penny Baker probably didn't succeed is that he let his failed businessman father run it. And he made a lot of bad decisions. He lost all his money by by putting it in different places. When he died, they didn't know where he put the money. So there's a lot of money that if it was still around, they couldn't find it. So he sold Penny Baker, all of the movies every even the office equipment he sold it all to mca universal in 66 and signed a six picture deal and it's the first time he ever had a multi-picture deal actually that's a lie he accidentally signed a two-picture deal in the 50s but ultimately on purpose the only time he ever signed a multi-picture is <laughs> in 1966 with universal so he had like a movie a year sometimes two a year from 1950 till 1973 he was in 30 some movies and some of them are really really good things like the young lions which is amazing the chase which with jane fonda um 1966 that one's amazing directed by arthur penn like these great like little movies a lot of crap ones too so back to my point he has six picture deal and the pictures he's doing then the appaloosa which is a pretty good sort of it's a good western john saxon and then it's like uh he does a bunch of crappy movies or or not successful movies some are better than others And then in 1971, he does a movie called The Nightcomers. And Universal is so sick of being in the Marlon Brando business that they give the production company, The Nightcomers, $300,000 to make it a Universal picture so that can fulfill the contract and they can be out of the Marlon Brando business. That was 1971. 1972, The Godfather comes out.
0: Way to go, (laughs) Universal. Okay, one, first, when you said that he signed with MCA, I thought you meant uh, Beastie Boys. And (laughs) (laughs) I was getting really excited. I miss you, MCA. And two, that's hilarious that they missed out on Godfather.
2: Yeah, here's another thing is because he didn't have a studio, and this leads up to why getting away was so important, because he didn't have a studio deal, there was no studio PR to rein in anything that was being said about him or control his, his public persona in any way. So 1950 he does The Men. No one really... I don't know if anyone noticed. It's a very good film. He's really powerful. He, you can still see him learning the theater versus screen acting. And then his second film, 1951, is uh, Streetcar Named Desire. And he gets nominated for an Academy Award. And then he gets nominated every year until he wins with Waterfront. He doesn't win for Streetcar. He doesn't win for Viva Zapata. He doesn't win for Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar and... the and, uh, the wild one come out in the same year 1953 really
0: yeah i'm amazed at how well his career did being outside the studio system right though. yeah that's really unheard of if they're not pushing you if they're not it like was at interesting that time.
1: especially during that
0: time yeah at that time specifically
2: so as a result the pr wasn't raining anyone in either so so once he streetcar comes out he just explodes so they get to write whatever they want Mm. so he suddenly becomes you know it's like tabloid journalism today i don't know that he's the first to sort of have that tabloid journalism experience but maybe the first as we understand it today
1: did he ever sue anyone for making libelous comments about him
2: yeah he well he's the first he's the first i think to do that he sued the saturday evening post on a story they ran because of mutiny on the bounty but that's again he didn't push back on anything ever so people just wrote whatever they wanted and he never pushed back because he didn't care because he was always one picture away from quitting anyway. But... Um, perhaps. But... But um, <laughs> but the Muni and the Bounty thing was huge. So, Mutiny and the Bounty, the script was never completed. And we have boxes of scripts, you know, and all of the rewrites and everything. So, the, the script was never... They fired the director at some point and replaced the director. It was just a disaster of a production. So... And it cost a fortune. And then it didn't do well. But this was also very interestingly the turning point of the studio system this was 60 early 60s i always forget the i always get the early 60s confused
0: i think everyone does
2: (laughs) (laughs) but so so the studio system is collapsing and these big studio movies aren't doing well anymore so rather than own up to that they they blame the actors so they blame Brando for all the cost overruns and everything. He may have been responsible for something maybe, but it was really this shift that was happening. And the same with Cleopatra, same thing is happening at Fox at Cleopatra and um, they blamed everything Elizabeth Taylor. So he wasn't doing press. Somewhere I read that MGM hired someone to just run bad press about him. The one, that person's one job and spread, you know, uh, rumors, negative rumors about him or tell bad stories. And that was the Saturday Evening Post was one of these. And that's when he sued the Saturday Evening Post and he went on the offensive. And he went on the Today Show, he went everywhere and did a ton of press about what Hollywood is doing to actors and talking about the shift that's happening and how, and defending Elizabeth Taylor. And there's this amazing program that came on in, in I wanna say 64. Um, it's CBS News. It's a half hour documentary on CBS News television about the, the state of the entertainment industry in Hollywood and movies specifically. And John Huston says a great thing. He says in the future movies, Hollywood cinema will either be giant box office, you know, tentpole movies or tiny story film everything in the middle will be television
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh our own nostradamus
2: (laughs) (laughs) so but brando's in that and they use some of it in the in the listen to me marlin documentary where he's defending i don't know if he's defending actors necessarily but he's attacking really the studio system and how flawed it is and how it's breaking and all these things
0: I need to watch this documentary. Have you seen it, April? Uh, no.
2: It's only available on Showtime streaming. On Showtime,
0: okay. But Hulu
2: has a Showtime thing where you can get it free for a month or something, so you might be able to get through Hulu as a deal. I don't know.
1: Austin, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. This has been absolutely fascinating. I kind of thought we were going to talk mostly about the island, but I really think that learning all this other stuff about Brando was really, really helpful in painting this picture of who he was. And he's incredibly inspiring just thinking about what's going on uh, in politics now and and. Uh, we need good activism role models and it sounds like Brando we should really be looking to him for giving us that inspiration
0: how often do we see actors today being told to not use their voice and I'm like they're citizens too why not use your voice some of them are better at it than others.
2: <laughs> well, he did that thing that George Clooney is actually becoming very mm-hmm. good at doing too, which is, you know, if you're going to put a spotlight on me, then I'm going to take that spotlight where you don't want to look.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for joining
0: us as well. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to download us and, and have a listen. And all of the feedback is amazing. You can always give us a rating on iTunes.
1: Or you can post some ideas, post your thoughts, post your comments, your questions on our Facebook page. Uh, You can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, Until next week, I'm Rachel. And I'm April. Bye.